Misunderstanding can be a very horrifying thing, can't it? <laughs> Misunderstanding can not only deflate a little girl and her mother's hopes and dreams, but it can destroy a ministry. It can wreck the work of God. And today I want to look at uh, probably the last incident, the last major crisis that, that Israel had to overcome in the allocation of the land, the promised land. And it was a crisis of misunderstanding. The uh, tribe of the Gadites and the Reubenites and the half-tribe of Manasseh were, were um, escorted to the Jordan River and, and uh, there before them was presented their land and all that was there. And then over a period of time, and we don't know exactly how long, they um, set about to uh, create uh, um, an altar. And, of course, the, um, the altar of sacrifice and worship where God had placed his name was in Shiloh on the east side of the Jordan. And there wasn't to be any other altars of sacrifice or burnt offering where people would come and, and uh, receive atonement for their sin. And so this, these two and a half tribes on the other side of the river appeared to be creating a whole new religion, a whole new ministry, a whole new way of worshiping God that was in contradistinction to the way they were supposed to be. And so a misunderstanding was was now set before the the, uh, people of Israel. Today I want to, um, to give you from the text some enduring advice for those who believe that unity is God's glue for producing an authentic advertisement of the glory of God. Now, I I guess as I look out on you, um, really, we probably don't need this lesson. Misunderstanding has never taken place in your life. There's never been any evidence or shred of disunity within Calvary Baptist Church or the work of Christ uh, here in Oshawa, I would take. So so perhaps uh, you'll bear with me because I'm sure this is not applicable at all to us. But, but maybe perchance someone wandered in off the street and will find something that, that is related to their life and, and hopefully they'll be able to apply it. Jesus himself said this, May they be brought to complete unity, re- referring to the body of Christ, the church, to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them e- even as you have loved me. I don't know if we've paid attention to the gravity with which this uh, statement was made and, and the implications of it, but Christ here is, is placing the, our relatedness and the way we relate to one another as a primary way that the world will know that, that the living God actually sent Christ and that Christ is the sent messenger and the only messenger of God. That's how significant it is for us to be of one uh, heart and mind and in unity. In fact, I think Jesus has stated here the way the church relates affects the way the world believes. So Joshua chapter 22, although it's an Old Testament story, has very many New Testament applications to it and significant ones for us today. The opposite of evangelism is not do nothing... It is disunity, I think. So if your Bibles are open, would you, if they aren't, please turn with me to Joshua chapter 22. It's a long chapter, 
So I, uh, I, but I do want to, uh, I want to go over all of it with you. So we've got some reading to do. I hope you're okay with that because we want to source all of this, of course. This is God's message to us from his word. Then Joshua summoned the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh and said to them, You've done all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded, and you've obeyed me in everything I commanded. For a long time now, to this very day, you have not deserted your brothers, but have carried out the mission the Lord your God gave you. Now that the Lord your God has given your brothers rest, as he promised, return to your homes in the land that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you on the other side of the Jordan. But be very careful to keep the commandment and the law that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you, to love the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to obey his commands, to hold fast to him, and to serve him with all your heart and all your soul. Then Joshua blessed them and sent them away, and they went to their homes. To the half-tribe of Manasseh, Moses had given land in Bashan. And to the other half of the tribe, Joshua gave land on the west side of the Jordan with their brothers. When Joshua sent them home, he blessed them, saying, Return to your homes with your great wealth, with large herds of livestock, with silver, gold, bronze, and iron, and a great quantity of clothing, and divide with your brothers the plunder from your enemies. By the way, when God blesses, the bounty of even your enemies becomes the booty for God's people. So the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh left the Israelites at Shiloh in Canaan to return to Gilead, their own land, which they had acquired in accordance with the command of the Lord through Moses. When they came to Gililoth, which means circle of stones, near the Jordan in the land of Canaan, the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh built an imposing altar there by the Jordan River. And when the Israelites heard that they had built the altar on the border of Canaan at Gililoth, near the Jordan on the Israelite side, the whole assembly of Israel gathered at Shiloh to go to war against them. So the Israelites sent Phinehas, son of Eleazar, the priest, to the land of Gilead, to Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. With him, they sent ten of the chief men, one for each of the tribes of Israel, each the head of a family division among the Israelite clans. When they went to Gilead, to Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, they said to them, The whole assembly of the Lord says, How could you break faith with the God of Israel like this? How could you turn away from the Lord and build yourselves an altar in rebellion against him now? Was not the sin of Peor enough for us? Up to this very day, we have not cleansed ourselves from that sin, even though a plague fell in the community of the Lord. And are you now turning away from the Lord? Of course, the sin of Peor was when they, uh, the Moabite women seduced the men of Israel and, and 23,000 were uh, slain by the Lord, by a plague um, that, at that time in Numbers 25. If you rebel against the Lord today, tomorrow he will be angry with the whole community of Israel. If the land you possess is defiled, come over to the Lord's land where the Lord's tabernacle stands and share the land with us. But do not rebel against the Lord or against us by building an altar for yourselves other than the altar of the Lord your God. When Achan, son of Zerah, acted unfaithfully regarding the devoted things, did not wrath come upon the whole community of Israel? He was not the only one who died for his sin. Then Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe Manasseh replied to the heads of the clans of Israel, The mighty one, 
God, the Lord, the Mighty One, God, the Lord, He knows. And let Israel know. This has been in rebellion or disobedience to the Lord. Do not spare us this day. If we have built our own altar to turn away from the Lord and to offer burnt offerings and grain offerings or to sacrifice fellowship offerings on it, may the Lord Himself call us to account. No, we did it for fear that someday your descendants might say to ours, What do you have to do with the Lord, the God of Israel? The Lord has made the Jordan a boundary between us and you. You Reubenites and Gadites, you have no share in the Lord, so your descendants might cause ours to stop fearing the Lord. That is why we said, Let us get ready and build an altar, but not for burnt offerings or sacrifices. On the contrary, it is to be a witness between us and you and the generations that follow that we will worship the Lord at His sanctuary with our burnt offerings, sacrifices, and fellowship offerings. Then in the future, your descendants will not be able to say to ours, you have no share in the Lord. And we said, if they ever say this to us or to our descendants, we will answer, look at the replica of the Lord's altar, which our fathers built, not for burnt offerings and sacrifices, but as a witness between us and you. Far be it from us to rebel against the Lord and turn away from Him today by building an altar for burnt offerings, grain offerings, and sacrifices. Other than the altar of the Lord our God that stands before His tabernacle, when Phinehas, the priest, and the leaders of the community, the heads of the clans of the Israelites, heard what Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh had to say, they were pleased. And Phinehas, son of Eleazar, the priest, said to Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh, Today we know that the Lord is with us, because you have not acted unfaithfully toward the Lord in this matter. Now you have rescued the Israelites from the Lord's hand. Then Phinehas, son of Eleazar the priest, and the leaders returned to Canaan from their meeting with the Reubenites and the Gadites in Gilead and reported to the Israelites. They were glad to hear the report and praised God, and they talked no more about going to war against them to devastate the country where the Reubenites and the Gadites lived. And the Reubenites and the Gadites gave the altar this name, a witness between us that the Lord is God. This is the word of the Lord. Now, by the way, I want to point out to you that at issue here, which is mentioned three times, is that the concern was that they were turning away from the Lord. You find it in verse 15, you find it in verse 23, you find it in verse 29. It's repeated so that we understand this was a serious matter or perceived as a serious matter. It wasn't just an intramural uh, discussion about uh, some some way of saying something or some behavior that, that just didn't seem right or how some people were bothering one another. This was perceived as an extremely serious matter. They perceived that their brothers and sisters were turning away from the Lord. Keep that in mind as we embark upon this journey, but let's ask God to help us on the way. Father, because this is your word, we can't, uh, we can't ignore our time to just pause and ask you to please open up our hearts and our minds, our thinking, our willingness, Lord, help us not to be a rebellious people towards your word. Help us not to fold the arms of our heart and, and, uh, and shut you out. Help us not to raise up excuses and defenses, Father, um, when your Holy Spirit comes probing and knocking and 
on the heart. But rather, Father, I pray that you might um, de- develop in our hearts individually and as a community um, a seriousness about this matter of unity and disunity, about misunderstanding, about the, um, the need, Father, for the people of God to be one people and to advertise their unity that the world might believe that you have sent Christ. And Father, we realize that that Christ himself made a huge issue of this, our unity. And so, Father, I pray as we embark upon this journey in the few minutes that we have, that you will uh, enlighten our hearts to the truth and you will um, encourage our attitudes to be doers of the word, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to look at... look at a couple of strategies this morning for keeping the church sticky. If we believe that the way the church relates affects the way the world believes, I think it's a pretty important matter for us. You'll notice that um, as as we start out this story, we we, we have to go back a few verses into chapter 21 to understand the transition into this time. Uh, It says there in 43 that that the Lord had given Israel the land he'd sworn to give them. They, They were settled there. It says the Lord had given them rest on every side. Not one of their enemies withstood them. The Lord handed all their enemies over to them. Not one of all the Lord's good promises to the house of Israel failed. Every one was fulfilled. This was a time of rich blessing in the people of God. They, they, were, they were looking at each other saying, Man, wasn't last Sunday a great Sunday? Didn't God meet us? Wasn't this a great blessing to us? God has given us so many great things. He's fulfilled His promises. This was not a time where, where there was trouble among them and they were battling away at things. No, this was a, a time where everything was starting to be settled out and they were in rest and, and their enemies were, 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 had been silenced and, and put aside and, and, and uh, God had resourced them with the, the resources of their, their enemies so that they had a bounty and everything was going great. There was one last thing to do. Make sure the allocation of the land was complete. And so take these two tribes, two and a half tribes, and make sure that they had the allocation of their land on the east side of Jordan. And so Joshua establishes, first of all, with them, the footing, the foundation, the key, uh, as he's sending them on. And by the way, we're, we're journeying along. When you're reading a text like this, what has happened later on in the chapter hasn't happened yet. So Joshua is talking to them. He's telling them what they need to do and the kind of people they need to be. And, and so I zeroed in, first of all, on the whole idea of being a sticky church where people are glued together and glued to the Lord is really found in verse 5, which is key. It's a key strategy. It says there, be careful, be very careful. Even though God is blessing you and abundantly pouring out blessings upon you, giving you rest and settling things and, and, and giving you victory over the enemy in your life and, and, and everything, you're looking at each other saying, man, isn't God great? He's fulfilling all of his promises. Joshua stands up before them and says, don't get complacent. Make sure that you keep the commandments of the Lord. Be careful. Keep the commandment, the law that Moses, servant of the Lord, gave you. To, and, and then he articulates what keeping the commandments of the Lord really looks like in practical life. Because see, we say, oh yeah, I keep the commandments of the Lord. What we hear, he unfolds, he unpacks what keeping the commandments would really look like. To love the Lord your God 
Now, why would he say that? Because one of the commands is, love the Lord your God. Love the Lord your God. To walk in all his ways. To obey his commands. To hold fast to him. And to serve him with all your heart and all your soul. As I was studying this, I had already determined that I, I want to take this whole chapter and I want to deliver it to God's people this morning. But, but, but as I was looking at it through the week, I thought, man, I wish I hadn't have decided to do that because I would have loved to camp on verse 5 for a few weeks. It's an amazing, I'll maybe have to circle back there and come to this. So at the risk of camping here too long and getting into a time crunch, let me just say to you that this, is, this I think, is the prime directive Before you can launch out in any ethical discussion on how we ought to behave with one another, Joshua says, this is it. This is the foundation work. This has to be the prime directive. Be careful to keep the commandments. And and if, if, if Joshua were able to summarize what that would mean and why that matters so much, I think he would say, because loving God changes the way you live. That's why it's so important. I mean, before we talk about the ethical behavior, we, we, we respond, how we respond one to the other, you really have to understand that from God's perspective, it's all about loving God first. Loving God changes, always changes the way you live. And, and he stops here and pauses here to, to, to really develop what uh, loving the Lord your God really looks like. It means that you will walk in all of his ways. I don't know if you have come to the place in your life. I've been working a long time at understanding the nature of our relationship with God. And in order to understand, I think, what God really has in mind for us, we have to go back to the Garden of Eden before the fall and understand that It was always God's intention to hang out with us. That's why in chapter 2 of Genesis, it it says there that Adam and Eve heard the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day and they ran away and hid because they had sinned. God was always showing up. He was showing up to walk around with them. To just, just go on a stroll at the, at the end of the day, in the cool of the day, when at the, at the late afternoon, God would show up, and, and, and they'd go walking together, and, and they'd talk, and, 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 and God would interact with them about their day, and they would interact with God about, about their day and about the day to come. And, and by the way, God doesn't want us to, to, to step away from that and say, well, we could never have that. Yeah, you can have that. That's what God wants to have with you. God wants to have a, a walk with you. The whole idea of walk is something special. You know, we're, we're, we're people who just fire up prayers. God, I want this, I want that, I want this. We quickly read his word, blah, 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 blah. And we think that that's the, practicing the presence of God. That's not. God wants you to do that, of course. But in the context of understanding, you are really hanging out with him. When you are praying to him and when you are reading his word and when you are going through your day. I mean, does God ride around in your car with you? Sure he does. You talk to him. I I know the people around you think you're crazy, but God is there with you. He wants to have that kind of a relationship with you. That's what it means to keep the commandments of the Lord, to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, to see him as your constant companion. There. There. 
with you. In um, Mike Breen's book, The Passionate Church, he, um, he writes of a, a missionary, a missionary to Muslims in southern Philippines by the name of Frank Laubach, who was, who was really challenged in his life about the whole idea of personal relationship with Christ, about what it meant to be related to Christ and have a real relationship with Him, what God wanted to have. And, and, and so he, he, he writes this, which I think is, is, a, is a great statement. God is infinitely more important than His advice or His gifts indeed. He Himself is the great gift. And don't, don't misunderstand what he's saying. He's not, he's not saying God's word isn't important. or He's not saying that the gifts that God gives you aren't important. But he is saying that God is the gift. That the purpose of the scriptures are to get us to God, to, to have that relationship with him, that it might be vital. A.W. Tozer writes this, God formed us for his pleasure and so formed us that we as well as he can in divine communion enjoy the sweet and mysterious mingling of our kindred personalities. He meant us to see him and live with him and draw our life from his smile. He meant for us to live in his constant presence, to enjoy the joy of the Lord and to have that in our lives and to experience that. I find as a father... That my best times with Graydon or Jordan or Bronwyn are when, we are, when, I'm by, when I'm by myself with one of them and we're just hanging out together. And that's the time that we can talk about what really matters and I can share my heart and I can hear their heart and, and I can tell them that their heart is wrong and, and they need to pay attention to what I'm telling them. And th- those are some of the favorite times that I have as a, as a father, this is the relationship. That's why God gives us this metaphor that He's our Heavenly Father and we are His children. And you know as a parent that there is no greater joy than when your children are in harmony together, getting along. And when you have the love of, of God's heart and when you love Him with all of your heart, you start to think like Him and feel like Him and disunity among brothers and sisters never sits right because children of God need to dwell in harmony because that's the way the Father wants it. So we walk with Him and we obey Him which means we, when, when loving God is the dominant factor of our life or it leads in our lives, it, he, it leads over all of our choices and decisions. Our choice is always run through the grid of how much I love God. And I go walking with Him and I say, Lord, I, I need to make this choice. And we walk in the cool of the day and we talk and we drive in the car and I say, God, I, I need to make this choice. Lord, I need to make this choice. God, what do you think about this choice? And like... Like when my kids ask me, Dad, what do you think of this choice? I'm like, hey, you're on your own. Are you kidding me? Not in your life. And it says here that you hold fast to him. That's the same word from Genesis 2.24 in the institution of marriage. Remember when it said, for this reason a man will forsake his mother and his father and he will... 
He will cling to his wife or he will cleave to his wife. It's the same word. He will hold fast to his wife. It's the word that is used to to glue something together or how skin is is put on the bone. You you don't tear that thing off. You, You stick. But it says here that we are to hold fast to God. He holds us. But we have to hold on to him. Which means we have to make choices every day that are in favor of holding fast to God. Being glued to God. Is this gluing me to God or pulling me away from God? That's how you keep the commandments. That's how you love them. That's how your life is shaped differently. That's how you get along with your brothers and sisters. You um, hold fast to him and you serve him with all your heart and all your soul. You take every part of your body and every ability that he has given you and every gift that you have and you employ it in the service of God in whatever calling he has called you to with all of your heart and all of your mind. That's what it means to love him. That's what it means to keep his commandments that your life might advertise the greatness of God. Now, I know I've taken some time to develop one verse and not enough time. But without that foundation, everything else I have to say about unity is meaningless. It, it's, it's, it would be as if some, some, you know, motivational speaker were standing before you telling you, I'm going to give you some strategies on how to get along with people. I, I'm not, I'm, that's not me. I'm not a motivational speaker. I'm not someone who stands before you and gives you humanistic ideas about how you should get along. It's all predicated on the idea that, first of all, you love God with all of your heart. Because everything else that I ever have to say, you from, say, to, say to you from God's word will only be enacted in your life if you love him with all of your heart. You come to me and say, look, I didn't get that strategy. I don't understand how it's strategy. The starting point is do you love God. Are you keeping his commandments? Are you holding fast to him? Are you making choices to obey him? Are you serving him with all of your heart? Because what God promises us here in life is not an absence of challenge, but the presence of his blessing to face the challenge with strength and health and depth when you are in good relationship space with God. The pleasure of God brings the blessing of God upon us. But I, I have to say to you that there's, uh, there's a responsibility that we have in all of this. Together. Not only does loving God change the way you live, but community accountability keeps unity robust. We've not been called to live individual lives We've not been called to be rogues living out there as islands. We've been called to live in a community. A community that challenges each other and, and, and makes sure that we're watching over one another, makes sure that we love one another, and makes sure that we're making sure that each of us are keeping the commands of the Lord. Making sure that we're loving the Lord with all of our hearts and walking with Him and serving Him and obeying Him and holding fast to Him. Community accountability keeps unity robust Christianity does not promote individualism. I'm not talking about creativity here. I'm talking about independence. Because there's always a problem with isolation. 
That's what they pointed out here. They said, look, we're worried about future years. You know, the Jordan is like a barrier. He says, the, jo- the Jordan here is a, is a barrier, the Jordan River. A, a barrier between the community. You're, gonna, you're all going to live on that side of the Jordan River, and we're all going to live on this side of the Jordan River, and we're concerned about isolation. We're concerned, we were concerned about the fact that, that over the years, we won't be talking to each other. We won't be interacting with each other. We won't be walking together. We won't be checking on each other to see, are you keeping the commands of the Lord? Isolation causes that. Lack of communication always sets up the possibilities of misunderstanding. You've probably faced some sort of emotional volcano that has blown because for some reason you were left out of the loop of all the information and um, somehow you jumped to some idea of what was happening and it wasn't necessarily what was happening but that's what you thought it was distant strange information flow by not communicating by the way the gadites the reubenites the half tribe of manasseh they didn't send a memo over to israel and say look by the way we're, we're building this thing and we want you to know what we're doing no they didn't say anything so by not communicating they were communicating And they were sending the wrong message. See, back in Deuteronomy chapter 12, there was a set pattern that God had established in terms of where the place of worship and sacrifice would be. In Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 4, it says, You must not worship the Lord your God in their way, the Canaanite way, just any way you please. Notice verse 8. You're not to do as we do here today, everyone as he sees fit. No, but you are to seek the place the Lord your God will choose from among all your tribes to put his name there for his dwelling. To that place you must go. There you're to bring your burnt offerings and sacrifices, your tithes and your special gifts, and what you have vowed to give in your freewill offerings and the firstborn of your herds and flocks. It's supposed to be the place that has been divinely authorized. That's where you're to go. So the vision of Israel with their brothers on the other side of the Jordan River was, they were usurping this command. They were not paying attention to it. They weren't supposed to build another place of sacrifice and offer, burnt offerings, and and, and a place where they would bring their their firstborn uh, of their their flocks and their livestock. So there's the problem of isolation. How many of you have had a misunderstanding over an email before? Right? Isn't it the way it goes? It's so easy for us. But then there's the problem of pugnacity. Because you know that email shows up and we read all the wrong things into it. And that's what they did. They looked over the other side, or actually they built it on their side of the river. They looked at this thing and they said, let's kill them. Let's just kill them. Don't you think that's a little pugnacious? I think it is. I mean, I'm talking about disunity here. They're talking about killing people. Let's just nuke them. Let's get it over with. Kind of they're, they're from the church where everybody else, the name of the church is everybody else is wrong church. You know that church? Or the, it's the, the, the church of the chip on your shoulder community church. You know that one? Where you look over and it's like just people are pugnacious. They, they just want to fight. Remember when Jimmy and Johnny were hanging out with Jesus one day and they were going through the land of the Samaritans and they weren't being hospitable? You remember what they said to him? Hey, Lord. You want us just to call down fire from heaven? Let's just nuke them. We're pugnacious by nature. 
It's a problem of isolation. There's a problem of pugnacity. And you know what what troubles me and and ought to trouble you, and if if you know anything about this situation, is Reuben, the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh had just been on a seven-year short-term mission project. Not so much of a short-term mission project. They had left their home and their families to go and help these other tribes fight and win the land of Canaan for seven and a half years. You know, that was those, there, were, there had been these massive group, group hugs. You know, I love you, man. I love you, man. Thanks for, you got my back. You know, we've been in the trench wars together. We've been fighting. And you know, they were breaking camp and they were all going to leave. And you know how it gets. It gets all mushy and tears are flowing. And man, we're never going to see you again. And man, it's been great. You, you know, we have such a bond. And, 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 uh, and the first thing that comes up, let's kill them. That's what bothers me about church. It really does. We hang out together for years. We do stuff together. We're, we're, we're serving God. We got each other's back. We're, we're in the trench wars for evangelism and the gospel. And, and we get one email and we're like, I'm killing that person. I'm, not, I'm never speaking to them again. Doesn't our history together, doesn't our, our friendship, our, our family ship, doesn't it mean anything? Why do we jump to conclusions so quickly? Uh, that, that's the second major strategy here, and we, we only really have two, so, so relax. Be, ca- be cautious about jumping to conclusions. Hughes, in his book, Living on the Cutting Edge, says, A suspicious spirit, which we vainly imagine as wisdom, is married to a cowardice which doesn't dare confront the so-called offender to determine the truth. That seems to be the, the, the basic picture of the church. It's a suspicious spirit... And we, we marry it and we think it's wisdom. And then we marry that to cowardice and we don't actually go and confront the situation at all. But that's not what happened here. But what troubles us is they're immediately ready to launch on the basis of an unresearched accusation. In fact, they've even given a nickname to this method at the other church across the river. They've called it the altar of rebellion. You know, they're saying, you know, we, we've got it all together over here. Ah, we would never do something like it. Look at them. They have the altar of rebellion. Kids, you don't want to go across the river because over there is the altar of rebellion. Nobody had thought to check it out. They had already just named it the altar of rebellion. They're not doing things the way we think they ought to be doing them, so they are rebellious Toward the Lord. In fact, kids, they're turning away from the Lord over there. Don't go over there because they will help you to turn away from the Lord. Not one shred of investigation had taken place. We don't know how long this went on for. Doesn't tell us. Long enough for the thing to be built and they seem to have everything going there for a while. So... What are then the strategies that were employed here finally when some sort of sanity occurred and likely God got involved? That's what I think. It says here in verse 13 and 14 that the Israelites formed a delegation. Phineas, the, the son of Eleazar the priest, and then 10 of the chief men of the tribes of Israel, the head of the family division along among the Israelite clans. The first, there's steps to follow to prevent unity meltdown. And the first is always investigate the situation, all right? Now, keep in mind the foundation is I'm loving God with all of my heart and all of my mind, all of my soul, 
and now uh, trouble comes up. Some sort of misunderstanding shows up. What do I need to do? I need to investigate the situation. It's best not to shoot first and then ask questions because a corpse will be unable to respond. So you got to go and investigate. You know, sometimes we're just like, don't confuse me with the facts my mind has already made up. That's why they already named it the altar of rebellion. But someone grabbed their Bible, fortunately, and uh, remembered that in Deuteronomy chapter 13, verse 12, it says this, If you hear it said about one of the towns the Lord your God is giving you to live in, that wicked men have arisen among you and have led the people of their town astray, saying, Let us go and worship other gods, gods you have not known, then you must inquire, probe, and investigate it thoroughly. Don't be talking about other churches if you don't know anything about them. Don't be talking about other ministries if you haven't thoroughly investigated. I'm sure there's all kinds of rumors in the region about how ungodly Calvary Baptist Church is. And I have been chief among those who have lacked generosity toward other ministries. But God has really pushed against my heart over these past number of years toward a far greater generosity toward the people of God and assuming that things are better than maybe I've heard until I know for sure. Not only investigate the situation, but secondly, go directly to the source. They didn't go to some fisherman on the banks of the Jordan and say, Hey, what do you know? What do you say? Have you seen that uh, monstrosity that the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh have put up? What do you think of that? Because everybody will have a story. Everybody will have an opinion. No, it says in verse 15 that when they went to Gilead, to Reuben, Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh. They went directly to the source. Too often, uh, suspicion and cowardice are married, as Hugh says, and we don't go. We don't investigate. We, we don't go directly to the source. We go to everybody else. See, Christians don't gossip. They just share prayer concerns with one another. I'm very concerned about what I've heard Uh, it actually, um, now by the way, I, I'm not suggesting we ought to become passive about the things of God. The things about God and truth and virtue and make those no big deal. That's not what we're talking about. But if you do not have the moral courage to confront the individual yourself, then shut your mouth. The third thing they did in verse 16, I notice, is the whole assembly of the Lord said, how could you break faith with the God of Israel like this? How could you turn away from the Lord and build yourselves an altar in rebellion against him now? They expressed their concerns clearly. They, they, they didn't beat around the bush, you know, hang out with the uh, Gadites and say, hey, nice, nice altar. Thank you. Now, you know that uh, worship is uh, sacrifice and burnt offerings and all that are supposed to be in Shiloh, right? Oh, yeah. Um, well, I just wanted to make sure that you knew that 
Yeah, yeah, I know that. Okay, boys, let's nuke them, right? That's not the way you deal with this issue. They went directly to them and they said, look it, you know what this thing says to us? This thing is saying you are rebelling against the living God and turning people's hearts away from God. That's what it says to us. Is this so? Because that's a pretty serious accusation. Now, that really matters. You know, if there's a church in the city that is turning people's hearts away from Jesus Christ, that ought to matter to us. But let's not talk about it. Let's go and talk to it. Express your concerns clearly. Fourthly, back up your concerns with Scripture. They pointed out in verse 17 and 18 and on, they pointed out to the Gadites and the Reubenites, they were reminding them about when you do leave, uh, be disloyal to God, bad things happen. There's still, it's still an exercise in totally missing the point, which is fascinating, really, because they got the priest, they got the Bible, they got everything going, you know, and they're still babbling around and missing the point because their minds were already made up. That's the problem. Minds were already made up that this is wrong and we're going to show you why it's wrong. But at least they had the Bible and they had the priest there and they were dealing with it. It was not the sin of Peor enough and, and, the, and the sin of Achan and all that. Don't you realize if you rebel against the Lord that, that it's not just going to be you who are in trouble, but we're all going to be disciplined? By the way, you may be acting in disunity, but God will treat us in unity. That's why it doesn't matter to us when someone's out of sorts with God. Because we're, we're not independent franchises. We're in this together. So they loaded up with their Bibles were still wrong, but they did make a good point and an important point. People, by the way, aren't sinning because they do things differently than you or, or you don't like the way they do things or the way they say things. It bothers you. That, that's, not, that's not what we're talking about here. The concern here was, are these people turning away from God? Our personality quirks and all of that stuff, that's not in, in view here. So... Um, because when, with, when God withdraws, people get hurt. That's what happens. Now, uh, the, next, um, you've got to allow for the possibility that you're maybe missing something. Again, this is kind of ironic because they did allow for the possibility that they're missing something. Look at verse 19. If the land you possess is defiled, come over to the Lord's land where the Lord's tabernacle stands and share the land with us. But it, kind of, it was kind of a little smug. I got to say, if I was on the other side of the river right then, I would say, this is the reason we built this thing in the first place. You're already starting with it. Come over to the Lord's land. What do you think this is? We are so brutal with our verbiage. I mean, think before you talk. But anyway, they're apparently being generous and saying, look it, you know what? We'll share our land with you. I mean, the matter of, of strain from God is so important. We'll, you know, we'll squeeze into one bedroom and you can have another bedroom. You know, we'll do whatever it takes. Allow for the possibility that you might have missed something. There was this uh, four guys in a plane. One was a minister. Uh, one was a computer expert. 
another was like a kid, and then, of course, the pilot. And um, it just so happens that there was a problem with the plane, and the, um, the pilot uh, came back to the cabin. He said, um, I have some good news and some bad news. I said, Which do you want? He said, well, give us the bad news. The bad news is the plane is going down. Well, what's the good news? Well, we have some parachutes. But that's partly bad news, too, because we only have three parachutes, and there's four of us. So the pilot says, look it, I'm, I'm, I, I have three little kids and, and a wife and everything, and so I, I need one of the parachutes, and he grabs one, and he just bails out. The computer expert says, look it, guys, I'm a computer expert. I'm the smartest guy in the whole world. The world needs me. And so he grabs, and he bails out. And so the, the, the pastor's left with the kid, and he says to the kid, well, you know, you're just a little kid, and you have your whole life ahead of you and, and everything, so here, you, you know, you, you might as well take the last parachute. The kid says, relax, Reverend. The smartest guy in the world just grabbed my knapsack. <laughs> see, so, so some, see, sometimes we just, we just miss the point. We just miss something. And, and that's what was happening here, that, that they were missing the understanding of this altar. And so... That comes to the final reality. When you are confronted about something as serious as straying from the Lord, be generous and open and don't be defensive. You see what they did? Al, Elohim, Yahweh. Al, Elohim, Yahweh, the Lord, the Mighty One, God. He knows he knows our hearts. They were like, look, at, we're, our lives are an open book. We, we want to explain this to you. You see, if you've got nothing wrong, you're doing nothing wrong, you've got nothing to hide, you're not going to be defensive. You're going to say, oh, please, I'm so glad you came to me because there, there's nothing I want to do more than explain to you what we're doing here. So we, we, we aren't building an altar for sacrifice and burnt offerings here. We were just concerned that this Jordan River and all years would go by, that one of these days, the people would say who lived over on that side, oh, they don't really follow the Lord. They're not really part of the people of God. And they would shut us out and we wouldn't be able to come over and worship. That's all this is. This is not an altar of rebellion. This is a symbol of unity. Can you imagine? Can you imagine how wrong we can be? We jump to conclusions. We see something with our eyes or somebody says something and we jump, we, we, we run, immediately we gravitate to the worst possible scenario. That really says more about us than it says about the situation. Nothing could be further from the truth. This is put here as a story that's really important for us because this is so human nature. This is so where the rubber hits the road with all of us. We're having a great relationship one minute and one little weird thing happens and we jump to the wrong conclusion and our whole relationship can go down the drain. And the ramifications are extremely great in the community of faith. Because Jesus says, they will know you are my disciples by your love. You know, when you start talking about how can I know for sure I'm a Christian, you know, I'm worried about assurance and certainty and all of that. Jesus says, did you, did you, do you want me to repeat it? They will know and you will know that you are a Christian by your love for your brothers and sisters. And we don't do it very well. We really don't do it very well. 
I think God is still looking. The eyes of the Lord are searching to and fro throughout all the land to strengthen a church whose hearts are fully devoted to him. That would really become, we talked about a safe place last week. We talked about a a sanctuary, a refuge. When we are that ready to turn on each other. God is looking. And, And I have to think that if our behavior affects the way people believe, then if we're really serious about evangelism and reaching people for Christ, this is where the rubber hits the road. This is what makes all the difference to them. That's why they said in the text, this altar at the end of the chapter is a witness between us that the Lord is God. You do all of this you, you keep the commandments of the Lord. You, 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 you're cautious about jumping to conclusions so that you can build, so that we can build a community together that communicates the Lord is God. I, I can't think of any better name for a church. That people would, would look at that and say, how do you describe Calvary Baptist Church? I would describe Calvary Baptist Church as a place that communicates the Lord is God. To me, that... um, It starts from a loving devotion to the Lord and naturally flows to a loving commitment to people through unity. Our altar, what we preserve, is this that the Lord is God. Pastor Steve, our Father, as we sing together this last chorus today, help us to um, use the time for reflection in our own lives and allow the Spirit of God to do some probing where there is historic disunity, bitterness, where there's barriers and obstacles, where we have not mended fences, where we have not sought to bring unity to a situation, Lord, I pray that this might be the time of application and resolve before you. Say, this is the work of God, the important work of God. So help us, in Jesus' name.